Blog Talk Radio.
Zabayomi Azikwe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, today is Sunday, March the 13th, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the planned resumption of talks between Russia and Ukraine on ending the military conflict. Um, Ethiopia has held the first Congress of the ruling Prosperity Party. We'll have details on that as well. The military regime in Sudan has announced another cash infusion from uh, the United Arab Emirates, and the Zimbabwe Information Ministry has announced a new policy on media relations. In the second hour, we look at uh, Africa-China relations within the context of the two sessions uh, uh, being held uh, in Beijing. Later, we continue our commemoration of Women's History Month with an examination of women in the Civil War and within the labor force uh, during the 19th and 20th centuries. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, Shala Moana. We'll be back. Thank you. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was the music of uh, Shala Moana from the Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, classic uh, Pan-African music. <clears throat> right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. <clears throat> our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current situation involving uh, Russia's special military operation in Ukraine. <clears throat> According to the TASS news agency, the Ukrainian-Russian talks uh, will be continued Tomorrow, March the 14th, in the virtual format, Russian uh, Presidential Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov uh, told TASS this on Sunday. Yes, he said when asked whether tomorrow's talks would be held online. Peskov said on Saturday that Russia's delegation to the virtual talks with Ukraine will be led by presidential aide Vladimir Medensky, as usual. The Kremlin Press Service said on Yesterday, uh, that in a telephone conversation with French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin informed them about a series of talks held between Russian and Ukrainian representatives in the video format in recent days. The first round of Russian-Ukrainian talks was held in Belarus, uh, Gomel's region, on uh, February the 28th. The talks lasted for five hours. The second round of talks was held on March 3rd uh, in Belovskaya, uh, Pusha, in Belarus as well. Uh, the talks yielded an agreement on humanitarian quarters to evacuate civilians. The delegations met uh, for the third round of talks on March 7th in the Brest region, also in Belarus. On March 10th, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov uh, met with his Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitrys Kuliba, on the sidelines of a diplomatic forum in Turkey's Antalya. On February the 24th, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation in response to a request for help by the heads of the Donbass republics. He stressed that Moscow had no plans of occupying Ukrainian territories but aimed to demilitarize and denazify the country. Following this step, the United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom, and several other countries announced sanctions against Russian individuals as well as legal entities. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, around the world, uh, it is uh, International Women's Month, and uh, just this last past March 8th uh, was International Women's Day, according to an article uh, published uh, by Elizabeth Mengistu uh, in the Ethiopian Herald. International Women's Day every year uh, is to acknowledge the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women, aside from raising awareness about women's equality and urging uh, for accelerating gender parity. In fact, over the years, various women across the world have scored remarkable achievements uh, in many areas, such as in the leadership stream, science and technology fields, engineering and medicine, politics, and other similar strides disproving the stereotypes uh, attached to them uh, for long and breaking the chains of discrimination. Many women can write their names in the books of history. However, as many people agreed, there's still much more to be done in empowering women and enhancing their engagement in the leadership positions because women are still underrepresented in decision-making positions. And uh, also uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, in uh, Ethiopia, According to the Borkana News Agency, on the second day of its first party Congress, the ruling Prosperity Party, 
yesterday announced that it had elected Abi Ahmed, the prime minister, as chairman of the party. He held the position for the past uh, three-plus years. Since I want to serve diligently and ethically, in order for me to be Ethiopian and serve you all with impartiality and loyalty, for time and situations not to take to here and there, pray for me. In the tradition of the party, which is inherited from the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which is now defunct, the chairman of the party is elected as prime minister. Essentially, it is the party that elects the prime minister, uh, the highest authority in Ethiopia as things uh, stand now. Prosperity Party has also elected two deputy chairmen, Demike Makinen and Adem Fada. Uh, no explanation was given as to why two deputy chairmen are needed uh, for the party. Demike uh, has served as deputy party chairman for the past three years in the party structure in the government position. The difference between the party and government is negligible. He has been serving as deputy prime minister and foreign affairs minister. Adim Fada has served as speaker of the House of Federation, the upper house, in the existing Ethiopian government structure. After Korea, Ibrahim, uh, who happened to be an executive member of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, unexpectedly resigned in June of 2020 as the differences between the TPLF and Abiy Ahmed led party <clears throat> led the party escalated uh, which eventually led to war in October of 2021 Adem Fada was replaced by Aganihu Teshiga uh, who served as president of the Amhara region Adem Fada was serving as the head of the party office until yesterday and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the Republic of Sudan, the Crown Prince uh, of Abu Dhabi pledged bank deposits in support of the Sudanese economy. That's according to the Sovereign Council. They made this announcement on Friday without specifying the amount. Uh, Mohammed bin Zaid El Nayan on Friday received the Head of the Sovereign Council, Abdel Fattah El-Bahan, uh, who is visiting the United Arab Emirates. After the meeting, the Sovereign Council stated that Al-Nahan reaffirmed uh, the United Arab Emirates' support for all national initiatives aimed at stabilizing Sudan. His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al-Nayan announced large deposits in Sudanese banks and development projects in Sudan that would boost the Sudanese economy. <clears throat> further said the statement. The official Emirates News Agency, WAM, however, did not report the financial pledge, but stated that the meeting discussed prospects of developing bilateral relations in various fields. After the military coup, the United States, the European Union, and international financial institutions suspended financial and economic support to Sudan and called to restore civilian-led transitions. The Friends of Sudan, the Trioka, and the Quartet countries, including the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, call for the restoration of the civilian government and vowed to support Sudan's efforts for political stability and economic recovery. Uh, Sudan is facing a severe economic crisis, while the Sudanese pound fell to a record low. Uh, the central bank liberalized the local currency, uh, did not help to stabilize it as one dollar, is traded at 600 Sudanese pounds. From the Sudanese side, the meeting was attended by Ali al-Sadiq, acting uh, foreign minister and finance minister Gabriel Ibrahim, and Lieutenant General Ahmed al-Mufadal, 
a director of the General Intelligence Services in the Republic of Sudan. And finally, in the Republic of Zimbabwe, uh, the government says opening the media space to different players is part of President Mnangagwa's drive to give everyone a voice as a way of guaranteeing press freedom. Now, information, publicity, and broadcasting services, Minister Monica Mushangwa, who was represented by her deputy, Kindness Paraza, said this is at a stakeholders meeting in Harare this week. The government, uh, through the Ministry of Information, Publicity, and Broadcasting Services, has licensed not only television stations, but also radio stations, both commercial and community. 14 community radio stations and seven campus radio stations were licensed. The ministry also managed to repeal the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act and replaced it with the friendly Freedom of Information Act, said Minister Mushangwa. In February of 2022, we launched one of the community radio stations, Habuzini FM, in Shirizi. The radio station is now fully functional and has been warmly received by the Shirizi community and those uh, from surrounding areas. It brings joy to us to be able to give a voice to the marginalized and previously left out communities. The aim of all the above mentioned efforts is to make sure that we give voices to everyone in our country and to make sure that we leave no one and no place behind, uh, said Minister Mushangwa. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has since then published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's News. Blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, March 13th, uh, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. By logging on to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, you can have access not only to today's program, uh, but well over 1,100 other archived editions of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break, uh, and we'll be back uh, with more of our program. Home, you'll find an awful change in me. 
both domestically and internationally. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, during the two sessions, Chinese State Councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi gave a press conference where he covered a wide range of pertinent issues. Before we begin our discussions today, let's hear what he had to say about China's governance. China practices whole process people's democracy. It is broad-based, genuine and effective democracy which enjoys the wholehearted endorsement and support of the Chinese people. This January, the world's largest public relations consultancy firm Edelman released a survey in 2021. Trust among Chinese citizens in their government was a record 91%, again topping the world and reaching the highest level in a decade. Polls conducted by Harvard University for many years also produced similar results. These are polls conducted by third parties, and as we can see, the world recognizes China's democracy, and we have full confidence in our past. Human civilization, if compared to a garden, should be a diverse place where democracy in different countries blooms like a hundred flowers. Setting a standard for democracy after the U.S. system is undemocratic. Meddling in other countries' internal affairs in the name of democracy would only hurt the people in those countries. Putting one's own system on the pedestal is not just against the spirit of democracy, but also spells disaster for democracy. While China partners with countries around the world in many ways, it is also the world's second largest economy, and these partnerships and growth have been driven by a unique system of governance. But how has this system evolved over time to steer the country to this pivotal position? And to help us understand this better are from Beijing, Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President, China Institute of International Studies, Victor Gao, Current Affairs Commentator and Vice President of the Center for China and Globalization, and from Johannesburg in South Africa, Ms. Mbambado Mongai, Sessional, Sessional Lecturer in International Relations at the University of Witwatersrand. Welcome all to the program and thank you for joining us um, on Talk Africa. Dr. Rong, if I may start off with you uh, very briefly though, because China has held its annual two-sessions period, one of the most important annual gatherings on China's political calendar. And this is um, you know, a world for the outside world to observe China's development in the coming year. First, give us an understanding of what the two sessions is all about and why it is important. I think the uh, two sessions, uh, the National People's Congress and also the uh, Political Consultative Conference that has been held annually, uh, usually last two weeks, but because of the pandemic has been shortened to around one week, it remains, I think, it's the most important sort of events uh, in China's uh, political life. It is not only with the reports by the uh, government, different uh, central government, the state council, and other related government departments about the work that they have been done in the past year. 
But more importantly, I think that it would formulate plans and programs for the uh, government, for central government to do uh, in the year, uh, in, in, the year in, the, in this coming year. And once these uh, programs, plans have been adopted, it's going to be implemented with sincerity for China. So this is the most important sort of events, not only for, I think, for the world to have an understanding of what China is going to do, but equally important is for Chinese people, for the average people to understand what will be happening uh, in, the, in the year, in the coming year. Victor Gao, the key issue here is that it will be implemented with sincerity, whatever plans uh, the two sessions uh, come up with. Help us understand, though, China's governance system and how it works. What is the ideological leaning here? I think these two sessions are the core of the democracy with Chinese characteristics. China is not an autocracy or dictatorship. China is a live and dynamic democracy. And the CPC session and the MPC session is more or less the equivalent of a Congress or a parliament in another country. And the CPPCC is very unique to China. It's a kind of political consultative body aimed at gathering information from all walks of life, uh, distilling them into proposals, submitting them to the central government, and then once all these proposals, legislative uh, drafts, etc., have been gathered, they will be decided upon, considered, and adopted into law or into government policies. So this is very, very dynamic, and all this is happening under the leadership of the Communist Party of China, which is the leading party in China. So in a sense, that China moves forward in one single charted direction, right. whereas other countries, uh, they deserve their own political system, of course. They sometimes have a lot of infight and moving in different directions, etc. So the end result for the whole country may be smaller or weakened, whereas in China, once we deliver all the decisions, the whole country, the whole nation, move in the same direction. I think this helps ensure greater stability in China and also reorients the whole nation in the right direction for the whole nation to move in. And in China, right. over the past uh, four decades or so, it's always maintaining domestic stability and keeping peace abroad. So this is truly China's essence of democracy of, with Chinese characteristics. I'll come to that in a minute. But uh, Dr. Rong, let me come back to you uh, for a minute because, uh, you know, Victor Gao mentions that this is not an autocracy and has talked about, um, you know, a lot of the participation from the people. Give us a little bit more of an understanding of how the people come into it and what is the role of the people in this process? I think uh, the democracy for China uh, is, the, uh, I think, the, uh, the, 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 the values treasured and have always been treasured. And of course, China's democracy has its own characteristic. We call our people's democracy, whole process democracy. But the, the, the very fact that, uh, uh, that how the participation of people of all works lives has been sort of uh, taken place uh, is because of the wide range of the process itself the institution itself, but more importantly, I think the inclusive nature of China's uh, uh, sort of uh, the political system. 
and the People's uh, Congress, MPC, and the, the political consultative system is a kind of uniqueness. It's a kind of creation of China uh, in line with the own conditions. And the uh, deputies, they are all together. I think for the MPC, National People's Congress, have around uh, 2,000 and more. And the national, the, the, the political consultative conference around, again, 2,000, all together. They were, they are, uh, they're being elected uh, sort of indirectly, and which give them a way to have an understanding, have access to the various opinions and views of, uh, of uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, of all walks of life. And they, they bring these ideas, bring these proposals, then come to, uh, to present for deliberation, for discussion, and of course, for, uh, I think, uh, uh, adaptation. And once it's being adopted, then it will be uh, sort of implemented. Because up and uh, above these, these process, we have the unified sort of leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, the OCPC, the only sort of uh, party in power, which will be uh, uh, responsible for supervising implementation. Ms. Mungai, you know, um, most of Africa's uh, systems, I know every country has a different um, uh, structure depending on its uh, colonial legacy, but it is mainly very Western-centric. What are some of the lessons, though, that can be drawn from, uh, you know, China's uh, governance model that can be drawn for African countries? We all know that uh, during the 60s, more like uh, 60s, 70s, Africa and China both had the same economic trajectory and had the same um, experienced the same type of economic growth and GDP levels. However, the fundam one of the fundamental factors that somewhat caused the different parts is, on the one hand, you had China that decided to focus inward. In Africa's case, a lot of focus was oppression, so to speak, overt, non-overt pressure to actually open up its industry, open up, open up its market and less privatization, which is somewhat a different approach than China took. And the advantage of focusing more inward and protecting the domestic market is that you actually got, China got to invest into its local market because uh, businesses were not ready to compete yet um, against the already established MNCs um, that, you know, an open market actually exposes a domestic market to. So alongside that, you also, you also had the accumulation of debt. Even now, in trying to recover from the effects of COVID-19, you have China, you know, having set an economic uh, growth target of 5.5%, and one of the many strategies that have adopted is not only expanding the middle class, as well as encouraging innovation and uh, climate change aims and so forth, but there's also, and back to that, investing and focusing on the domestic um, economy. So I think drawing it back to Africa, if we say that one of the lessons that we can draw from China right. is um, investing more into the local market, um, we also need ideology that needs to actually inform, because once again, that's another distinguishing factor in China's approach is ideology and how that is also informed some form of a unison from all sectors in society. We see collaboration between business, um, between technology, innovation, right. between schools, there is unison there. Victor Gao, that is the question, uh, you know, that is being asked. What is it that China is doing differently? How is this model, uh, you know, system of governance that has allowed, you know, a lot of stability over the years and a lot of uh, stability for the policies moving forward? What is it China is doing differently? 
Well, first of all, allow me to say that different countries and different cultures do have very different ways of governance and uh, government systems or election systems or democracy with their own characteristics. There is no single country which can claim to have a monopoly of democracy. And there is no single model of democracy which can suit the circumstances and the requirements of all the countries in the world. So in a sense, every country needs to figure out what's the circumstances they are facing with at home and what will be the best solution that they can come up with. Now, for China, we believe truly that what we have is a democracy with Chinese characteristics. And it has generated the maximum benefits for the Chinese people. It has delivered bread and butter to the people. And uh, uh, it has uh, emancipated the creativity and productivity of the Chinese people. And it has lifted more than 800 million people out of poverty. China has eliminated abject poverty as a phenomenon by the end of 2011. Right. And we are now really very much building China with greater wealth and with greater development. In this sense, I would say several things are truly very, very important. One is domestic stability, which constantly get involved in war of one kind or of another in different parts of the world. This is truly a disaster for themselves, as well as those countries where war breaks out. China does not use war as an instrument of its foreign policy, and China keeps promoting domestic stability as right. a top priority. Now, with these conditions, China can really muster all the resources from all walks of life in the same direction of development. All right. Uh, very interesting discussion, and we have a lot to talk about. But we're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll have more on China's governance system. Then go away. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Well, still with me on the program, Dr. Rong Ying, Victor Gao, and Mbabato Mongai. Before the break, we looked at some unique characteristics of China's governance system. Let's now take a closer look at how it impacts some decisions, both at home and internationally. Well, Victor Gao, this year's two sessions comes against the background of a still downward global economic time, you know, as a result of the global pandemic. Give us some of the highlights of uh, the, the two sessions, first at the domestic level and at the international, at international level, and how this will guide Chinese policy in 2022. Thank you very much. Uh, from the Chinese perspective, I think the year 2022 will be very important. Uh, first of all, it will be a year of war or peace. We need to promote peace. We need to contain war. And we need to do whatever we can to avoid escalation of war from conventional warfare into non-conventional warfare. This is a task not only for China, but for all the countries in the world. We need to embrace peace rather than provoke a war. 
that's the megatrend in the world. In China, China is facing rapid changes and transformation. China needs to continue to uh, climb up the ladder into innovation and uh, creativity, AI, uh, meta world, for example, metaverse, you name it. So you're talking about shaking up of all walks of life, reconfigurating them and enabling them to move faster into the digital economy and AI economy and the economy of tomorrow. And uh, in terms of the traditional agriculture, industry, etc., they all need to be upgraded and moved up into modernized mode of production. And for China, such a country with 1.4 billion people, we need to solve the food security, energy security, power security, financial security, information security, you name it. We can leave no stone unturned in order to identify challenges, overcome these challenges, and innovate and recreate in order to embrace the world of tomorrow. Let's look at that market economy uh, situation and, and free trade. Um, Dr. Rong, because China has set its uh, GDP growth rate at around 5.5% for 2022, uh, Premier Li Keqiang also said that China will pursue higher standard of opening up and promote stable growth of foreign trade and investment. So what does this mean exactly for uh, global economic recovery? I think simply uh, to, to say in a simple terms that there will be more sort of opportunities for the world as China continues to enjoy development and China continues to uh, open up and China has continued to live reform itself. This is, I think, loud and clear. I will come back to the previous discussion about how I think China has been able to sort of always work, uh, uh, sort of look ahead and work ahead about uh, the uh, challenges, uh, plan ahead of the challenges like, uh, 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 that I've been uh, talking about. China is now uh, entering a, in a new era or new stage uh, of development, facing various I think, challenges at home and abroad. So because of, of the past sort of experiences and, uh, and we have been uh, reached to the stage that we are capable to do that. But more importantly, I think the Chinese people led by the Communist Party uh, and understand well the only way to uh, meet these uh, challenges, to address these uh, issues is continued sort of uh, reform and opening up. This, this is something I think uh, uh, very clear, and this is something I, I, I think is remains a, a wide-ranging concerns, uh, understanding, and consensus uh, for China, for Chinese people across all walks of life. Right, uh, Miss Munyai, You know, uh, let me also find out from you though. When it comes to Africa as a trade partner, because China is now Africa's largest uh, trade partner, what? Would uh, the 5.5% growth rate and further opening up of China, what does this impact, though? How will this impact the continent? Because it's, I suppose this uh, target of 5.5% is the lowest within, within decades. So I think that it is uh, two-folders. So on the one hand, uh, lower expected economic growth rate does actually have a negative impact on Africa in the sense of the replicate effect, you know, less trade taking place. Um, less demand for certain natural uh, resources and so forth. But on the 
other hand, it also presents an opportunity for Africa to actually in, um, find alternatives, not alternatives in the sense of another country to focus on, but um, opportunities to industrialize. So it actually also alleviates um, the over-reliance that Africa uh, tends to have on China or any other dominant uh, trading partner. So it is twofold. So one, on the one hand, it does have, a, especially with the largest uh, trading partner, South Africa and Nigeria, um, it does present a um, negative impact, in the sense, like I said, in terms of trade. Um, but on the other hand, it presents an opportunity to actually be strategic, be creative in alternative ways of actually generating economic growth, alternative ways of actually not relying on primary goods and so forth to, you know, to actually transition from a focus on or over-reliance on primary sector to manufacturing sector. Right. And once again, uh, China has also been in that kind of stage. So going back to the drawing board, essentially. So going back to the drawing board, in your view, and uh, Foreign Minister Wong, he did outline some commitments. Uh, for Africa, uh, Ms. Mungai, there, you know, apart from advancing anti-COVID cooperation, you know, they still talk about upgrading, you know, China and Africa practical cooperation through the Belt and Road. What outcomes do you think out of the two sessions? What outcomes are key for Africa and what are we likely to see going forward? We're not only trying to achieve economic growth, but we're trying to achieve economic growth in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of um, trying to combat climate change and the effects of climate change and so forth. So even the nature of partnerships, as we've um, heard and what's been alluded to, it also uh, it changes and also evolves with the changing dynamics that some are largely unpredictable. I won't necessarily say in terms of China changing its approach in Africa, but once again, that's a key word of being strategic on how to leverage the partnership that is happening between China and Africa right now. So, for example, if we know that infrastructure is, uh, has huge negative impacts, I mean, we see that in terms of uh, logistics, we see how it impacts uh, trade, transport, um, even in terms of econ uh, climate change and just energy transitions and so forth. So, how can we further leverage on the infrastructure that is actually taking place? How can we take advantage of the partnership, the education partnerships between Africa and China? So it also goes back to Africa also identifying the key industry. So if we say science and technology right. is what we need in terms of addressing future goals, how can we leverage on the current um, part, uh, partnership deal that we, that we have? All right. I want to get your winding up uh, remarks to all of you. And Dr. Wong, let me start off with you because looking at the two sessions and the outcomes of the two sessions, what in particular should we watch out for uh, in 2022, whether it is political, economic or uh, diplomatically? Well, I think one of the most important things for me is, of course, the new thinking or the idea of common prosperity. Because this is the iconic sort of thinking or idea as China has achieved a kind of all-round uh, better of society by er eradication of uh, 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 poverty. And now we're moving to a different say How to achieve that in the context of whatever taking, talking about the changing dynamics, both at home and abroad. And equally important, of course, what were the implications for outside the world, in particular, uh, for as uh, African friends, partners, as you are, uh, I mean, embarking on a kind of a new uh, era for uh, for development, and how China and Africa co collaboration partnership would be helped. And as a matter of fact, I think last November the uh, FOCOC uh, uh, meetings come up with 
uh, some very specific ideas, the nine point, I think, ag uh, point agenda for that, and how they are going to be implemented. This is something I think uh, would be of great interest and should be of great interest, not only for China, uh, and, but also, I think, uh, equally important for African uh, uh, friends, African uh, viewers. Victor Gao, your thoughts? Well, I think for 2022, stability will be very important. Stability at home, stability in the world, and we need to be prepared against all kinds of unexpected contingencies. So this will be a very important task for China and also for many countries in the world. Now, generally speaking, I would say as far as China's relations with Africa is concerned, connectivity, 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 because we have benefited hugely by building up China's infrastructure and connectivity, and we hope African countries and brothers and sisters can do the same by beefing up connectivity and position yourself in a better way to promote your economic development and modernization. Now, China will continue to do all kinds of innovation and creativity because the technological advances are just on the horizon and we cannot wait, we cannot be left behind. We need to use all our brain power to think about doing things in different ways, in better ways, in more efficient ways, and this will generate a lot of opportunities not only for China itself, but for all those countries that China deal with uh, as equals. Uh, all the African countries hopefully will uh, share this uh, common growth together with China, and we will rise together uh, with the rising water in the same boat, hopefully going forward. All right, Ms. Monyai, you have the final word. What we've largely seen historically is, and I think a lot of the, the, the criticism between China and Africa is, I don't want to say misunderstanding between the association, but we've never seen a partnership such as the one that we've seen between China and Africa. And I think that moving forward is all about, like my colleague mentioned now, um, connectivity, 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 and being strategic. So not just connect, connectivity for the sake of fulfilling self-interest from an African perspective, from a, a Chinese perspective, but uh, being strategic just in terms of making sure that the benefit between this partnership speaks into the future that both Africa is seeking for and both China is working for. So how can we maximize on the existing uh, partnership so that both parties actually benefit, but over and above that, but this partnership actually speaks into longevity and this partnership actually focuses and, and is future-centered. It actually speaks into China's future, ambitious, and as well as Africa's one. So being strategic and uh, um, maneuvering where you need to do, adjusting where you need to do, but connectivity, connectivity is uh, one of the central uh, themes, I, I think, in terms of moving forward between China and Africa's partnership. All right, we're going to leave it there for the moment. And that's all we have time for this week on the program. A big thank you to my guest, Dr. Wang Yim, Vice President, China Institute of International Studies. Victor Gao, current affairs commentator and vice president of the Center for China and Globalization, and Mabato Mongai, sessional lecturer in international relations at the University of Wittenbosch. Remember, we'd love to hear your feedback through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter, and you can also catch the show on our YouTube playlist. So keep the conversation going and tune in again next week for more of Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team in Nairobi, it's goodbye for now.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a segment uh, from uh, CGTN uh, Africa Service uh, dealing uh, with the two sessions meetings uh, that are taking place uh, right now in the People's Republic of China, uh, utilizing that as the backdrop uh, for discussion on Africa-China relations. And uh, we'll take a uh, musical break, and uh, we'll be back uh, very soon uh, with uh, more of our program focusing on Women's History Month. Keep on going. 
Detroit's own uh, Anita Baker, uh, giving you the best that I've got. And uh, this is uh, the best that we've got uh, at the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, March 13th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. And uh, we're going to move right now into our Women's History Month, uh, continuation of programming. And uh, this is a lecture by Professor Beverly Bond of the University of Memphis, who discusses Tennessee women uh, during the Civil War. Uh, let's listen in. This is Rachel Helbring. I'm from the Tennessee State Museum. And this is week two of our um, class series leading up and talking about women's suffrage. Uh, a few things to go over before we launch right in. Um, we're so glad that you're here this evening, uh, but we would also like to make sure that your microphones are muted. So um, if you go down kind of to the bottom of your screen, you might have to bring your cursor down. You'll see a little microphone pop up. It should be red. That means you're muted. Just double check because sometimes um, your devices will cause interference. So please do that. If you have any tech questions at all, if your audio is messing up or anything like that, um, Joyska Nunez Medina, she's on here. You can chat directly to her and she can kind of help you troubleshoot if you have any audio problems. Um, you can also send any questions to all panelists and we can all see them. Um, at the very end, Dr. Bond is going to answer some questions. So if you want to shoot those over also in the chat bar, get to the chat the same way you find your microphone, just kind of scroll down towards the middle of your screen. Um, again, send those to all panelists, and we will ask Dr. Bond some of those questions here at the very end. So to kick us off and get us started, we have Dr. Miranda French-Rose. She is the uh, curator who has been developing our ratified exhibit that will open later this year all about the centennial of women's suffrage. So Miranda, take it away. I'd like to welcome everyone and thank you so much for joining us tonight. We are so grateful to have with us this evening Dr. Beverly Bond. She is a professor at the University of Memphis. Dr. Bond's research interests focus on African American women's history, and she has written numerous scholarly publications on that topic. Um, Dr. Bond is, has also co-edited a multi-volume series of Tennessee Women, Their Lives and Times, which is an excellent resource on Tennessee women's history. Um, recently, Dr. Bond was a featured scholar in National Public Television's Women's Suffrage Documentary by One Vote. And we so appreciate Dr. Bond's work with the Tennessee State Museum. She is a member of our Board of Scholars that has been advising us on all of our women's suffrage exhibit projects. If everyone would please join me in welcoming Dr. Bond. Well, thank you so much for having me as one of your speakers. Um, I am going to just, I'm, this is, I'm kind of new to all of this, so I'm just going to assume that everything is going okay. Uh, Rachel is getting me set up with my slides. Uh, this particular lecture is not really on I guess the suffrage period. It's really on the, the years that are leading up to the suffrage. And I'm going to focus on um, the topic of when war comes to women, the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, because I think that was, that was a, a seminal event 
in the lives of women, uh, particularly African-American women. And much of what we will see later in, that, in the century in terms of the suffrage movement is only possible because of what has happened with the Civil War. So let me just kind of um, go into this. I talk a little bit about the roles that women played, um, North, South, Black, White, um, in the Civil War. I'll talk about changes in lifestyles um, as they're transitioning. African-American women are transitioning from slavery to freedom during this period. And then about the expectations of what freedom would mean. Um, suffrage isn't, for women isn't, black women in particular, isn't one of the primary things that you see as the goal coming out of the Civil War. But it will, of course, become a goal as you move into that post-Reconstruction, late 19th century suffrage movement. So and it, let me just go ahead with the lecture then. When we think of war, regardless of time or place, we have traditionally envisioned battles between men, uh, men engaged in army conflict with women appearing only occasionally. Um, and most likely, if they do appear, they're on the periphery of the battle, of the war. War is usually about armed conflict, man-to-man -man struggle, conflicts that become badges of masculinity, um, conflicts that very rarely have to do with fighting or struggling for femininity, for ideals of, of, of what are the roles of women. Men and boys go off to war, and our visions of battlefields is distant sight. While women undoubtedly experience the deprivations of war on the home front, very few were physically present on the battlefields. Next slide. Next slide. But war did enter the lives of women during the American Civil War. In a few cases, women on both sides of the conflict chose to join the fighting, sometimes disguising them themselves as men and serving until they were wounded, captured, killed, or until they chose their secret. In the American Civil War, these soldiers included uh, women like Frances Clayton, who was who served our, uh, as a soldier under the name of Albert Cashier, Sarah Edmonds, who served as Franklin Thompson, which was an alias she had been using uh, to earn a living even before the Civil War. Um, her she earned a living as a sales, selling Bibles, traveling around selling Bibles, but she could only do this. Um, by assuming this disguise of a man. So she just continued the disguise and became a soldier during the Civil War. Um, she served in the Union Army, both served in the, in the Union Army. And then there's Loretta Velasquez, who served as Lieutenant Harry T. Buford in the Confederate Army. Also Louisa Hoffman, who enlisted first in the Confederate Army and then later um, served in the Union Army. So she's making that transition from one side to the other but serving in both armies um, in the disguise or with the disguise of a man. Women used male names. They dressed, dressed as men, binding their breasts, patting their waist, as you can see in the photos of the, in the illustration at the top, and cutting their hair short. They also depended on the fact that military recruiters were anxious to fill quotas um, in the war effort that was a, a war that was literally eating up the ranks on both sides of the conflict. So the military recruiters just didn't ask questions if these women were safe or were um, 
excellent in their disguises. These cross-dressing soldiers modeled male speech and mannerisms and male behavior. Some, like Elizabeth Niles of New Jersey, who fought beside her husband, Martin, in the 4th New Jersey Regiment, uh, sorry, Infantry, eventually were mustered out as men and may have even collected pensions from the Union Army. Many carried their secrets to their graves, and sometimes these graves were on Civil War battlefields. And a few were only discovered to be men, sorry, to be women, when they were captured or wounded. Next slide. Now, in this slide, you have um, several pictures of women who are serving in the war, but they're actually serving in ways that were that, were, that maintained um, this gendered, socially accepted um, ideas of what a woman should be. So they're not uh, cross-dressing, they're not trying to behave as men. They are essentially still doing what are considered acceptable women, what, uh, female roles. For example, Confederate spy Rose Greenow lived in Washington, D.C. and hosted social gatherings for military and political leaders. Under the cover of these social affairs, Greenow gathered information concerning federal troop movements, supplies, and military strategy. She then dispatched these coded messages to Confederate forces. Greenow was imprisoned in her home in August of 1861, but continued her espionage efforts even while she was under house arrest. She was released in May of 1862 and sent to Richmond, where she continued her activities again before eventually traveling on a diplomatic mission to England and France. Greenow died when, um, in a shipwreck in 1864 when she was returning from Europe. Um, the ship wrecked off the coast of Wilmington in North Carolina. Belle Boyd was another Confederate woman who operated as a spy out of her father's hotel in Front Royal, Virginia. In one instance, she provided information to General Stonewall Jackson during his attack on Union troops in Front Royal. Boyd was arrested several times and eventually made her way to England in 1864. She returned to the United States in 1862, sorry, 1866. Pauline Cushman was an actress who scouted Confederate forces and was a Union spy under the command of General William S. Rosecrans. Next slide. Sorry. We could just stay with this slide, but this one's okay. Don't worry. Uh, black women, I just want to mention that black women also contributed to the Union espionage efforts. And, of course, two of the most famous black women who served as spies were Harriet Tubman, uh, who had escaped from slavery and returned 19 times to help um, others escape, and Mary Jane Richards Denman, who usually was known, um, her activities were known, sorry, her name was revealed in her activities as Mary Bowser. So you may see um, a book by an author. I wrote a name down, but I don't have it with me right now. I'll put it in my sources. But um, the book is describing her, is naming her as Mary Bowser, but her name was actually Mary Denman. Tubman was a, a, a Union scout, a nurse, and a spy, and she even created her own uh, spy network to infiltrate Confederate bases in South Carolina. Like Tubman, Denman was born into slavery, but she was freed and sent north to be educated. She returned to Richmond just before the Civil War. 
posed as a, a, uh, as a slave, infiltrated the Confederate White House, and became, uh, and because she was literate, she gathered information and then passed it on to the Union Army. Some of the other activities of women during this period, one of the most important of these activities, was nursing um, the wounded on both sides of the conflict. Um, I think that when we think about nursing during this period, one of the most important things to kind of gather is that these women, men and women, who are the doctors and the nurses, are actually creating a sorry, creating a nursing corps, but creating a United a government nursing or um, medical facility because this is something that had not existed before the Civil War. But when you have this massive war effort and you have this the extreme and these uh, very difficult injuries that are the result of this, um, and the huge armies on both sides, there will have to be some kind of health core that is emerging. So for the first time, you see this um, core of doctors and nurses on both sides and hospitals that are developed on both sides. Women helped organize medical care for soldiers on both sides of the conflict. Black and white, northern and southern, women nursed the sick and wounded soldiers in hastily constructed field hospitals or in the wards of more developed hospital facilities in towns and cities. Confederate women organized hospitals for soldiers in Nashville and in Memphis before those cities fell to the Union. In Nashville, the Ladies Tennessee Hospital Association raised money for, su for supplies and staffed the hospitals with nurses. The Southern Mothers of Memphis raised funds to provide assistance, clothing, and nursing for Confederate soldiers. Elizabeth Aiken, who was known as Aunt Lizzie, and Mary Mother, Sturges, uh, Mother Mary Sturges joined the 6th Illinois Cavalry as nurses and worked at the Union hospitals in Memphis. Dorothea Dix organized the first nursing service for the Union Army as a whole. Mary Ann Bickerdyke served as a sanitation commission agent and traveled with the Union Army for four years, assisting in amputations, washing clothing, and treating the sick. And then, of course, the most famous of these nurses is Clara Barton, who organized medical care in Maryland and Virginia and eventually founded the American Red Cross. We can move on to the next slide. I thought I'd include um, a picture of one of the hospital facilities from Nashville. This is the Hospital for Federal Officers in Nashville in 1864. Next slide. Most of what we assume or most of what we know about women's activities in the war really focuses on what is happening on the home front. So if we look, first of all, on the Confederate side or at Confederate women, Confederate women maintained their households throughout the war as much as possible. Many of them kept the farms and the plantations functioning, providing supplies to men, sometimes um, secreting medicines and clothing and shoes uh, that were necessary for the war effort. Sometimes um, hiding these in their dresses or their coats as they passed, as they went into cities, captures, uh, cities that had been captured by the Union bought supplies, and then brought these back to their homes. Um, there are any number of entries and diaries, where uh, Confederate women's diaries, 
where you see mention of these kinds of activities. Um, after her husband's death, Adelicia Hayes Franken Ackland managed the family's cotton plantation. And when the Confederate Army threatened to burn over 2,000, almost 3,000 bales of her cotton, she transported the cotton to New Orleans, smuggled it out past the Union blockade, and sold the cotton in England for nearly a million dollars in gold. Confederate women sometimes recorded their Civil War experiences in diaries and memoirs, which give us some idea of what's going on on their home front or in the home, with their home front activities. Mary Boykin Chestnut in South Carolina um, kept a diary in which we're able to see what she described or what has been described as, quote, a vivid picture of a society in the throes of its life and death struggle. Chestnut was the wife of a former U.S. senator who later served as an officer in the Confederate Army. Other Southern women also wrote about their wartime experiences, and these include Lucy Virginia Smith French, Rachel Carter Craighead, and Nanny Haskins of Tennessee. African-American women wrote their uh, kept diaries as well. Uh, Susie King Taylor, you see um, in one of the photographs above, was from Georgia, and she composed a diary that described her experiences in a camp, a military camp, one of the military camps, Union Army military camps. In the North, mothers, wives, daughters of Union soldiers faced economic hardships that were very different from what um, Southern uh, women did uh, when their men were drafted or enlisted into military service. Wages were sometimes delayed, and in the case of black soldiers, some of them were paid less than white soldiers if they served in the serving in the Union Army. For example, black soldiers in the 54th Massachusetts refused to accept pay until it was equalized. Their female relatives might have appreciated the gesture, but this still meant that they had to struggle to make ends meet. Um, in a society that even before the Civil War um, discriminated against African-American women and men in terms of the occupations of the jobs that they could have. Next slide. The Civil War had a profound and lasting effect on African-American women's lives. And since much of my work focuses on African-American women, um, this is, of course, where I'll try to make some transitions in terms of how these women are moving from slavery to freedom. Enslaved men and women began leaving farms and plantations across the South as soon as the fighting began. Some poured into southern cities like Memphis, Nashville, Atlanta. Others exchanged one rural residence for another. Um, an act of freedom in many cases was just simply moving from a place where you had been enslaved to a place where you could enjoy some level of freedom. Formerly enslaved reach Union lines, if that was where they were, if that was one of their goals. They were often put to work building fortifications or working in some of the hospitals um, that were being established or in some cases just um, doing the same kind of service things that they may have done in small towns or in rural areas. These workers were considered, quote, contraband of war, with the initial assumption that uh, if the in the beginning of the war, that they would be returned to the owners 
their owners after the Union victory. Um, the term contraband is itself problematic since it continued to reflect the idea that those fleeing the plantations and seeking freedom were still property. Um, contraband is property. Some union officers um, did in fact return fugitives to their owners. But very early in the war, you begin to see other union officers who are finding roles, finding jobs that the escaping enslaved people could do, things that needed to be done, but not really sure about what would be the union policy um, toward the escaping fugitive slaves. Abolitionists from the very beginning demanded a stronger stand on fugitives and on emancipation. In 1861, Congress passed legislation which provided that any property used with the owner's consent and with his or her knowledge in aiding the rebellion against the United States was to be confiscated. This was one of the first confiscation acts. There was also the suggestion in a second confiscation act that this property, this confiscated human property, would be freed. But the Union actually, of course, has no official policy at the very beginning for what would be done with these armies of refugees who are coming to their lines, uh, seeking some kind of um, refuge or some kind of security, and hopefully not uh, to be returned to their owners. Special camps were eventually established near Union Army posts. Um, and if you look, through, if, of course, around Nashville, around Memphis, um, you, across Tennessee, you can actually see, you actually had a whole string of these camps, refugee camps that had been established. By 1863, there were over 1,200 black refugees in three Memphis camps and another 2,500 black migrants who were scattered throughout the city. By the end of the Civil War, this black population in the camps, in the shantytowns, in the cities, um, in the city of Memphis and in the city of Nashville and just about every other major city or town in the South had increased in Memphis you actually had by 1865 about 16,000 16, African-Americans um, in the city. Now this was of course um, four times the number of blacks that you'd had in the city before the Civil War. So what you see happening here is that before the Civil War where you had 4,000 African-Americans mostly enslaved, almost an overwhelming number of enslaved, enslaved rather than freed. Um, by the end of the Civil War, you've got 16,000, all of whom are freed. So that's going to be a major development in terms of social, economic, and even political changes in the city. Conditions in the, the camps, which I'll just call refugee camps, because, of course, again, con contraband implies property. And these are people who are escaping from that status that they they're trying to get away from that status, even at a time when the Union Army had no clear idea of emancipation or ending slavery. Uh, so these become camps for the refugee, black refugee population. Conditions in these camps tended to be generally poor. I think um, around Memphis, one of the, uh, in Memphis, West Tennessee and Northern Mississippi, um, probably the camp that is 
considered the best of these camps was the camp in Corinth, Mississippi, uh, which was almost like a model of camps. But the others, as you see in the photograph, uh, were m more likely to be just these tent camp enclosures. Hastily constructed cabins sometimes, but um, for the most part, just tent camps. Camps were generally overcrowded and they were disease ridden. Next slide. Going back to what happens to um, women in these contraband camps. Initially, there were more men than women in the camps. And um, of course, the reason for this is that if you looked at the numbers of people who are escaping from slavery, even before the Civil War, the overwhelming majority are men. Um, that continues into the Civil War, but you do begin to see increasing numbers of women who are either escaping on their own or who are escaping with husbands, fathers, and even sons, mothers coming with their sons. So at the very beginning, you have more men, but an increasing number of women. After 1863, when black men are from the camps are drafted and can be drafted into the Union Army or can enlist in the Union Army, many of these camps make a change. They transition from having an overwhelming majority of men to having majorities of women. For example, by the end of the Civil War, about three-fourths of the um, residents of these camps in Memphis were women and children. Of the nearly 16,000 African-Americans in Memphis by 1865, about 60% are women, reflecting this increasing number who had been coming in during the Civil War. If we looked at 1863, when you're just beginning to see this population coming into the city, of over 1,200 who are present in the Memphis camps in 1863, about 218 were women. 186 of these women came with children, and there were about 700 children in the camp. So you got a um, little over 900 women and children. A majority of that number in the camps themselves are women and children. Women in the camps found jobs in the city or around the camps as general laborers, um, as hospital aides, as cooks, as laundresses, um, generally working at the Union Fort in the city. Most of these women, once again, were unskilled. Um, most overwhelmingly were illiterate. Um, in the camp itself in 1863, there were only about eight women who could claim a status of skill, but they were skilled as seamstresses. Most camp residents, um, again, were illiterate, but Northern missionaries and the Freedmen's Bureau are sending agents to the South and organizing in the camps, organize, organizing schools in the camps. Camps eventually included schools, churches, um, some small businesses, barber shops, these kind of things. However, many of the women and children and some men who were old, too old to be maybe drafted into military, many of them were uh, sent to surrounding areas, uh, back into the agricultural sector. For example, on um, President's Island, which is um, in the Mississippi River, adjacent to um, the city of Memphis, um, 
there were still cotton plantations or a cotton plantation on the island. And the women, some of whom had husbands or fathers um, serving in the Union Army out of Fort Pickering, were sent to President's Island to pick cotton and to, of course, back into this agricultural sector. Women from the camps also worked as searchers of white women who were going back and forth from the city back to the rural areas, searchers um, who once again, uh, sorry, women who were um, sometimes transporting what we would consider essential goods um, to the Confederate Army in the rural areas. Next slide. Another way in which um, black women, another place that black women found jobs um, was in Memphis, was working in what was called the Canfield Orphanage um, for black children. Uh, some of them brought their own children. So this is not necessarily an orphanage. Um, it's not necessarily confined to just children who are without parent, both parents. Um, a woman who might be employed in the uh, orphanage could keep her own children with her. Canfield um, Children's uh, Colored Orphan Asylum was established in 1850, sorry, 1864. During the course of, its, um, of the Canfield work, some of the children who were brought to the orphanage um, were, of course, sent or were fostered out or apprenticed out to um, white families sometimes in the rural areas or sometimes in the city. One of the most important thing that's, things that's happening um, for African-Americans, men and women, during this period is that there is this question of the value of their labor. Um, how are they to be paid? Um, those women who were working in the orphanage, um, of course, brought their children and might be paid in kind in terms of um, having a place to, to live, having um, food for their children. Um, sometimes the women who were working um, nursing black soldiers um, in the city, um, men and women who were uh, employed as nurses, um, might be considered, might be paid into, might have their wages paid into what was called a common fund, whether they wanted to or not. And these common funds were essentially to be available to all of them. Now, this was happening at a very important period when. African-Americans are trying to negotiate this transition from being enslaved laborers into a free labor market where their expectations of what would, you know, what would be the value of their labor, they are essentially the same as the expectations of, of whites during this period. Next slide. One of the most important things that is also happening during the period is um, the development of African-American education. And we can see this happening all across the South. Um, I've, I've given some examples in terms of what's going on in South Carolina, where you have Charlotte Forden, who was actually from Pennsylvania, from a free black family in Pennsylvania that where her mother, her, uh, her grandmother, her aunts had all been active in the um, Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society had been founders of that society. Um, she was well-educated, and when the war began, she um, came south to the Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina uh, to begin working in the schools, um, educating blacks. Um, Laura Town was a white woman who was also working in the same area, and Mary Peak, um, all in South Carolina. 
And at one point, Laura Town and Charlotte Warden are both working in an area and in a school that will um, become known as the Penn School. So that whole education process is one that black women are becoming very active in. Black and white women are becoming very active in. Next slide. Okay, so I'm going to transition to the post-Civil War period. And what I'd like to just kind of uh, make, I'd like to make this transition by talking about what are some of the goals that African-American men and women had during this period, during the Civil War period. What do they think will be, how are they constructing ideas of freedom? Uh, when I give, when I talk to my students about Reconstruction, and I'm teaching a primarily African American history class, I don't really go into a lot of Reconstruction, political Reconstruction, where we're looking at the Reconstruction Acts and we're looking at um, the, all the different political things that are happening on a national level. Um, and I choose to call this period, a look at this period, as one in which you are having a construction of Black freedom. And what are the expectations of black freedom on the part of African-Americans? Um, I also look at what are the expectations of black freedom on the part of white Southerners and white Northerners, because all of these different groups are focusing on what, what, is, gonna, what is gonna happen to these four million um, newly emancipated people, economically, socially, and how will they factor into the politics of the period, uh, politics of this era, of, this, of, of the nation as a whole. One of the most important things that begins to happen as large numbers of men and black men and women are coming um, into southern cities and towns is the idea of creating legally permanent families. Um, and this is very distinct from what it, you know, what of course had existed in terms of family life um, in enslaved areas. Family life existed um, even under slavery. Marriage existed, but in a different way. So what we see happening during and after the Civil War is legal, legalizing marriage, making marriage look a little different, look more permanent. As African Americans were in the South, enslaved people were moving into um, moving away from plantations and farms where they had been enslaved to areas where they could exercise some degree of freedom in terms of um, women, mothers, daughters, sisters are following, again, black men to these areas. As the men are drafted into the army, the uh, Union Army, uh, the women are left sometimes on their own. Marriage was a way for the Union Army to, in a sense, force many of the women who had come to the camps back, I'm sorry, out of the camps, and in some cases back into rural areas. And they did this by simply saying that only the women who had some kind of biological tie, like fathers or um, two fathers or brothers or whatever in a camp could remain there and could get the benefits of the, these men's service in the Union Army. Um, so essentially what's happening is that 
people are legally marrying, and in this case, what you see in this illustration, this is a mass wedding ceremony where you see the bride and the groom, but you also see in the background either people who are there to help celebrate their marriages or in some cases um, people there to kind of line up and be the next, next person to get married. So what's, what is this really meaning? It means, first of all, that marriage is a way for the Union military to force black women out of these camps, to kind of, you know, diminish the number of women who are in the camps who might um, become dependents of the men or become dependents of the military, who would be entitled, for example, to some kind of um, maybe medical service or medical um, help. Another thing is that marriage is a way in which families can gain some kind of legal status for their relationships. So you've got people who have been together for decades who recognize that in this new world that they're coming into, the only way to protect their families is that they have to have a legal, legally binding document. Marriage is also a way, on the other hand, of making black men responsible for women and children. Uh, sometimes when there is no, you know, there's no financial, um, there's no government way of financially taking care of women and children who are coming out of slavery with nothing um, into a situation in which they may not even be able to get jobs. Uh, many of the women who are coming into these camps um, are women who are ill, um, women at different stages of illness and sickness. Many of the people who are coming from slavery, um, escaping from slavery and coming uh, into the camps um, are not healthy. But what you're doing in terms of marriage is that you're saying, okay, you are now responsible, not the federal government, um, nobody else. You as an, a man are responsible for taking care of your family. This has all kind of positive things that are going on here. Um, and one of the things that many people ask is, okay, so why is it that did, did large numbers of black men and women decide that they were going to marry? Well, many of them did, but there were others who were saying, well, you know, I have been married to this person that I'm with right now for 20 years, um, and we are as married as many people who are rushing out to get a marriage license and get married. So what does marriage mean? Um, and marriage does not necessarily mean a piece of paper. Marriage means that we have been together in a committed relationship. So this is a very complex thing that is happening here um, in which people are saying marriage can, marriage can mean, okay, that our marriages, our families are as protected as the families of, um, of people who had enslaved us as white families. But then on the other hand, marriage means something beyond this. We've been married. We had a minister who married us um, as enslaved people. Next slide. We also see, and I, I like to move from this idea of marriage to this idea of women's post-emancipation goals. And I think one of the things that you see happening as a post-emancipation goal is that people are trying to live lives that are as far as possible different from what they had experienced under slavery. 
they want a life, and women, and this picture kind of says a lot, women want lives that in no way resemble what slavery might have looked like. Um, in this picture, what we're looking at is this idea of the politics of respectability. And the politics of respectability, as you see it in this picture, are reflected in um, hairstyles, in clothing, um, in just the way in which the people are people are posed in the photograph. So this politics of respectability reflected in all of those things can also be perceived as just to kind of assume some of what um, white women had had before the Civil War or free black women had had before the Civil War, that you're not treated as a person um, whose labor and whose, even whose body does not belong to them. They have, you know, there's a certain respectability that goes along with this, that you are entitled to basically be treated as a lady. Next slide. Post-emancipation goals also included, um, if we go back to this idea of marriage, protecting family, but it included reestablishing, reconnecting with family. So. One of the things that you see is that men and women are seeking relatives who have been lost during slavery. And these are really interesting um, efforts to find people, um, efforts that, again, have a Tennessee connection because these are little ads that were posted in the colored Tennessean um, of people who are searching for relatives that they have not seen in sometimes 20 years. If you look at the um, I think it's the one at the bottom. The person is saying that he hasn't seen his mother since 1844, and it's now probably about 1868. Four years, he hasn't seen his mother, but he's trying to give enough information to find his mother that he's been separated from. So this idea of reconnecting, finding, and reestablishing family is very important. Next slide. So what we see happening here is freedom is constructed in terms of family, it's constructed in terms of reestablishing connections, and it's constructed in terms of this ideal of the two-parent household. What this also meant, next slide, next slide, is that freedom is constructed in terms of control over labor. Um, transitioning from a system where you had no control over um, your labor as an enslaved person to a system where you do have some measure of control over your labor as a, in a free labor system. And in this free labor system, this might also mean that in this two-parent household, in this uh, uh, family relationship that is often modeled on family relationships of white men and women, that, that newly freed women's labor was controlled to a sense or was seen to be controlled in a sense um, by their husbands. Now, that's a little problematic as well because in many cases, um, these women didn't often see their labor in that way. Uh, they saw themselves as controlling their own labor in a way that put them in conflict with um, white employers um, and that might put them in conflict with black men 
who sought to control labor of the household. Now, what I mean by um, putting them in conflict with um, white employers is that sometimes white employers, that again, they're going through a transition in ter- as well in terms of the meaning of freedom, black freedom. And many women's labor within a household um, <clears throat> essentially was the same labor they had done before the Civil War, but now they are able to determine what this labor is worth. How much should I be earning for the labor that I'm doing in this household? Um, And on the other hand, many employers are saying, um, well, you know, you were doing this labor before you you found yourself to be free, so we want you to continue doing this labor, and maybe we'll pay you, and maybe we don't. Um, The response on the part of many newly freed women was that they used the courts. And at this point, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, they are essentially using what's called the Freedmen's Court um, to bring charges against people who are not paying them for their labor. Next slide. I'm going to hurry through the rest of this, so I have just at least a few minutes for some questions. Um, They are challenging authority through the Freedmen's Courts. sometimes very successfully, sometimes not. The majority of, in terms of labor, the majority of enslaved, formerly enslaved men and women will find themselves back in the agricultural sector. Um, and in that agricultural sector, you still have that um, push-pull in terms of the meaning of, this, of labor at this point um, and the meaning of ideals of womanhood during this period. Um, families, black families, now see themselves and see, they see labor in a context in which they have control over who will work and how will they work, and sometimes make decisions that essentially will withdraw women's labor from field work um, because they want to have women, some women, some women within the household who are just working for their household, not working for someone else's household. So this sets up other conflicts. Next slide. And then another aspect of what is happening in the aftermath is the victimization of African-American men and women. Um, And we see this in rural areas um, as well as in urban areas. This is a period when, of course, you have the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and other um, what we would call in the modern term paramilitary organizations or terroristic organizations that are seeking to kind of input, seeking input in terms of what freedom would look like. You also see it in urban areas in some of the urban conflicts. And of course, um, this Harper's Weekly um, is um, a picture of what's happening in Memphis in 1866 with what we call the Memphis Massacre. Next slide. In all of these things that we see happening, women are, black women, are in a sense demanding um, autonomy in their relationships. And this demand for autonomy, this new way of seeing their roles within families, within communities, is something that will be reflected in what comes in this next stage of how they're going to relate to the suffrage movement, the women's suffrage movement. 
um, I think some of the other speakers in this series will talk about that transition during the Civil War and after the Civil War in the suffrage movement. And we need to kind of focus on the fact that African-American women will be involved in this because they do see themselves as having roles and having um, authority within their households and within their communities. And they see suffrage or they see the vote in a very different way. Um, so let me just kind of see if I can go on to the next slide. And let's go on to the next one. So I don't want to, I want to leave just at least 10 minutes. Next slide. Now, one of the things that I think that's the last slide, Beverly. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, I meant to the, the sources. Okay, great. I'll do that. Um, we're going to be transitioning because I know that some of you um, would like to know, are there sources available to find out more about these women and about these, you know, what's going on during this period? Um, so I did develop a list of sources that you can use. Um, and the first set on this first page um, include some that are primary source materials, um, like the letters of Laura Town. Um, um, let's see a little further down. Probably, the others are probably on the next page, but um, that's the primary source. Um, Laura Ed Edwards is a historian who's written on this these different transitions that women are experiencing: black, white, um, northern, southern, in this period from slavery to freedom. Susie King Taylor, I mentioned her. Um, Charlotte Borden, um, their information. Menelaus. Um, uh, Uffelman, who is a historian at Austin P, uh, one of my colleagues on, in Middle Tennessee, has published two books um, on two books or two collections of um, on the diaries of Southern women um, during the Civil War period. So I'm going to include these, and of course the last one here is the Federal Writers Project, in which is, are, is a collection of slave narratives where you find more information. And then I'm going to do a plug for a recent book. On, um, by myself and historian Susan O'Donovan um, that focuses on the Memphis Massacre. Um, and then some of the others talk about the violence that women experienced during, black women experienced during this period. So let me just stop at this point. I have about 10 minutes left and I'll try to see if I can answer some of your questions. Any questions for me? Questions? Uh, let me look through. I know Miranda was having some audio issues, so let me look through. I know you've got a bunch of seeing them, them pop up as a here. That was so great already. Um, Audrey asks, was the cult of womanhood in late 19th century primarily a white phenomenon, or did black women and men subscribe to that limited view of black women's roles? Okay, let me see if I can do this very quickly on this, because I think when we think about this cult of true womanhood, it's translated in a different way. It's, it, well, cult of true womanhood is kind of like that northern version of that idea. Southern version is very different. Um, African-American women have different versions. So when we see there's no uniform ideal of womanhood, and the cult of true womanhood doesn't fit Africa, all African-American women. If we looked at Northern free black women, they might have connections or see connections in the lives that they could live with Southern women, Southern white women. 
um, free women or with northern free women. Um, for example, if you looked at the life of a person like Charlotte Borden and her mothers and her grand sorry her mother and her aunts and her grandmother, because they come from a very wealthy, prosperous, free black family, they could fit that model of womanhood. But if you look at a woman like um, let's see, well, the life of an enslaved woman, her life is not going to fit that. Uh, for example, uh, cult of true womanhood, purity, piety, those are not always seen as virtues or possibilities for enslaved women. When you talk about sexual purity, if you're an enslaved woman, you don't have control over your body. So to say that you're going to exhibit this idea of sexual purity, is it doesn't fit. In the aftermath of the Civil War, the, Part of this may be what you see happening with this politics of respectability, that things are built into that. But again, you have to see it in a geographic context. You know, what is the, what is going on? Um, I think culture, true womanhood is just, it's a way of kind of putting all women in this little bottle, but they don't fit. Um, it, it's, it's not always realistic. All right, you've got two questions about locations in Memphis. Um, that's where were those refugee or contraband camps in Memphis located? And yeah, go ahead. Real quick, um, there are two that are located right outside the gates or around the gates of what's called Fort Pickering. Fort Pickering was a military Union military installation on the banks of the Mississippi River, kind of overlooking the Mississippi River. And since, you know, when you have large numbers of men who are coming in, um, of course, they're going to be housed in that, in near that fort, and then they're going to be um, drafted out, out of the military. So you've got two there. You've got um, one or two more that are in what's called North Memphis, so north of this whole area of Fort Pickering. Uh, you've got the camp down in Corinth, Mississippi, which is very close to, and, and eventually when they close the camp in Corinth, Mississippi, um, those, the free people who are in that camp will be pushed into the camps in Memphis. You've got a camp on um, President's Island. Um, so they're going to be around this area. And, of course, the goal is that you're not going to be in that camp forever. You're going to transition into the city of Memphis. And when you get into the, when you transition from the camp, um, many people will move into areas around the camp, but in what's called South Memphis, that South Memphis neighborhood. So if you're reading um, either our book on remembering the Memphis Massacre or Dr. Ash's book on the Memphis Massacre, um, they'll describe what's happening, the events, and they'll talk about this African-Americans living in this South Memphis area. And the other one? Yes, they asked where the Canefield Orphanage is located. That's going to be near. Well, it's all going to be in that area around there. Um, I have to go back and look at my records to see what the street names are. But in that same in the same general area. Wonderful. Um, we got a lot of questions about the refugee camps in the South protected by Union troops and what happened kind of as as those camps. Camps dissipated. What happened to those people? They go into the cities. Um, same would be true in terms of Nashville, 
or in terms of any of those camps that are, you know, either the people are going to move into areas, uh, shantytown areas, or ha- find housing in the cities that are nearby, or they may be going back to the agricultural areas. Because um, what you have essentially is the realization you have a surplus of farm labor, of African Americans who are coming into the cities at a time when the their labor is in great demand in the, the rural areas. So you very often find um, city governments that are trying to push um, African Americans out of the cities and back to the countryside. Uh, so you've got people who will stay if they can figure out how to negotiate those labor conditions. I mean, you've got to got to find a job, got to find something that you can do. And if you've been a field hand all your life, you know, there's only so much that labor that you can find, so many jobs as laborers in an urban setting. So it's a critical transition period. Absolutely. Uh, last question, and it's a big one. Uh, do you think the activist work of black and white women in support of suffrage helped lay the groundwork for the civil rights movement later in the 20th century? That's a huge jump in time. Okay, the activist work of the women in the suffrage movement that we see during this period, it's going to take 50 years from those, from the, if we say uh, from the 1870, 15th Amendment, you've got another 50 years before you get to the women's suffrage amendment. And then once you get to the women's suffrage, once you get, let's say, to the 15th Amendment, okay, you've got that granting all eventually or assuming all men the right to vote. It takes 20 years to disenfranchise African-American men. Then you have the enfranchisement of all women, but you also have the disenfranchisement of black women. So it's going to take another 30 or 40 years to push for the suffrage movement. And there will be consistent activism all the way through, whether you're looking at the in urban areas, you're looking at things like the, the Lincoln League in Memphis uh, with Robert Church and his mother and his sister and his wife as members of early members of the Memphis NAACP. You see this happening all across the South. So that there is that consistent activism. Ida B. Wells and the anti-lynching movement. Um, I think in Nashville you have that same core of activists people who are fighting against segregation, uh, streetcar segregation, railroad segregation, all of these different areas. And there is no period when there is not this activism. There's a period when maybe the activism is not as open as people would like to have it, but it is there. I think the thing is that people have to look for it Um, because I think we have this view of Southern history that is not quite as complex as what it should be. Um, For example, the question on the cult of true womanhood, you could say, oh, yeah, everybody, all these women are striving for the cult of true womanhood. Well, cult of true womanhood means different things in terms of black women, white women, northern women, southern women, um, immigrant women, in different from different immigrant groups, um, Asian, Chinese women, Japanese women, it means so many different things during all these different periods. So uh, the way in which we look at 
women's suffrage, the way in which we look at activism, it has to really be very nuanced and very very complex. We have to look for these complexities of, of life. Okay, I hope I got that one. That was a great answer. Thank you. Uh, we will wrap up. We got a couple of questions about if this is being recorded. It is, and it'll go on our YouTube channel probably tomorrow, Monday, um, for sure. So if you want to rewatch it, if you want to see all of Dr. Bond's sources that she provided, um, you can watch the video, you can pause the video there. Um, and somebody asked if we have books about this in our museum for it. We sure do. You know, the museum is not open, but when we reopen, um, definitely come and check it out because they've built up a really good variety of books all about women's suffrage and, and activism. So thank you so much, Dr. Bond. That was so wonderful. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Sorry, thank you. I was kind of rushed through it. <laughs> no, you did great. And thank you to Joyce and Miranda. So we will be back next week. Um, you do have to sign up separately to get the link for that class. So please go on our website and find that link. Um, we're going to have Dr. Mary Evans from NCSU, and she's talking about civil activism um, of Tennessee. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Dr. Beverly Bond of the University of Memphis discussing uh, some of the uh, very important and pioneering research uh, being done on uh, the Civil War, uh, its impact on uh, Southern women, and uh, particularly uh, African women, and uh, the changes that uh, developed uh, during the war and after the war in regard to the role of African women in the labor market. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is Sunday, uh, M- March 13th, uh, heading into Monday, uh, March uh, 14th. And, of course, uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll be right back uh, with more of our program. Sunday kind of love I love to last past Saturday night and I'd like to know it's more than love at first sight and I want a Sunday kind of love
five years later, six years later, we edited Sister Circle Black Women in Work. Yeah. How would you characterize this year? And this this is a you know, it's a fascinating sort of taking of an of an experience, collective experience of, of a group of women and then with the result of a book. But the book's undertaken with what precise uh, idea in mind? I mean, what were you attempting to do? Well, initially we were uh, attempting to just meet once a month in a research seminar mm-hmm. to share ideas, get in input from different scholars. What's special and unique about the project and the book itself is that it's interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So they're historians, literary scholars, legal scholars, uh, anthropologists, historians. Right. So I think what's uh, what makes the book particularly uh, compelling to people is mm-hmm. that it's interdisciplinary and that we discussed our ideas over many years and we have these really well-written, fine-tuned essays right. that reflect our original research interests but also the input from scholars from different disciplines. Yeah, we're going to turn to those essays in some significant number in the course of our conversation. But I moved to ask you another question just occurred to me. Is um, using the... the um, uh, symbol of the circle mm-hmm. is the idea of this book, in a sense, uh, to to widen the circle, to bring others into this discussion. And the reason I think that occurs to me is that you use the word interactive. It is highly interactive. It's interactive not just between the writers and their subjects, but also in a time sense, historical sense. It's interactive. Um, so I'm just wondering: is it written as much to provoke discussion as to bring understanding? I would, that's a very perceptive analysis because it was interactive on many, many levels. One is that we interacted with each other, but we so enjoyed the experience and how enriching it was that throughout every year we met, we'd always have a public forum. So we may have met in four or five different public arenas and opened up the discussion to people in the audience. So it was interactive in that sense. We wanted to be interactive because we wanted to be, go beyond the traditional scholar in the field right. to engage the thinking and the uh, share the readership with book clubs, mm-hmm. and so it was interactive, you know, in that sense. So we really did not want to write the traditional scholarly text mm-hmm. that may have a very small and very narrowly focused audience. We wanted a range of people to read the book, and then finally, I think we thought that it might provoke either some controversy, but certainly some conversation. Right. Well, let's look at some of these chapters and some of these essays. Uh, let's start right at the start, right, the, right at the um, beginning, a uh, very colorfully named first uh, chapter, Work at Sister, which has to do with the workplace itself, doesn't it? I mean, yes. like what goes on. In, in and the... we deliberately chose a, kind of what would not be a traditional scholarly uh, title mm-hmm. because we wanted to bring in a a, a new audience or enlarge our mm-hmm. readership beyond the university and to the book club right. uh, readership and maybe thinking Oprah Winfrey might even pick up this book. Well, that's the way to do it. You catch people's attention. There's <laughs> exactly, no question about it. Exactly. And another thing that catches people atten- people's attention is the very first essay, Tanya Lavelle Banks. And she goes into territory that's both interesting and challenging. I mean, talking about the way in which, quote, physical appearance standards act as a barrier to black women uh, in the workplace. I mean, the, the, the classic example is brought forth in this, her essay for good, uh, uh, cornrows and, and braids, for example, for women who are um, in corporate uh, positions and then being censored by those corporations mm-hmm. for having that. And that, you know, it raises an extraordinary range of, of issues. 
Um, one of them, Sharon, that occurred to me is that the, the lack of seemingly effective legal recourse mm -hmm. for women caught up in that mm -hmm. bind. Well, Tanya Banks is one of the two legal scholars in the group, a distinguished law professor at the University of Maryland. And uh, here again, she suggests the complexity of black women's work lives. It isn't one in which they're defined by either just gender or by racial identity, but how physical appearance, and this, of course, runs across racial lines. Right. Um, and so she's looking at what happens in a, in a workplace in which people, in particular, uh, black women are discouraged from wearing cornrows. And then she moves um, quite interestingly to another issue which has not been addressed but which several of our essays look at, and that's the whole issue of skin color difference in African-American communities and the implications. Colorism. For, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And so so um, it's not just about gender or race, but it is unfortunately mm -hmm. often about one's physical appearance. Yeah. I thought it was it was really um, uh, provocative because, as you say, it did go from related to very obviously related subjects, but colorism, mm -hmm. that is to say the hierarchy of color tones mm -hmm. within the black community, has been kind of a, um, uh, well, I would classify it as an embarrassment, quite frankly, yeah. um, historically yes. within the black community, not much talked about. Yeah. It certainly has been pretty taboo, in, except for in a few scholarly mm -hmm. um, examinations, probably more prevalent in uh, literary uh, representations, novels, and mm -hmm. short stories. But if we're serious about examining black women's work, it, we cannot overlook this as an issue in how black women live their lives. And as it turns out, what's particularly provocative about this essay, it involves two African-American women right. in a legal ch uh, battle mm -hmm. because uh, one alleges that the other was unkind and mistreated her and didn't support her because of the difference in their skin color tones. Mm -hmm. And so it's quite interesting, the one who sues uses the the legal uh, the, the legal cases that were used and the law that was used to prevent uh, racial discrimination, she right. uses it to say that she was discriminated against because of her skin color yeah. by another African-American woman mm -hmm. who was her boss. Bonnie Thornton Dill and Talise Johnson, uh, in their uh, joint essay, their jointly written essay, introduce us to the plight of poor black women in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, and plight, I think, is the right word, because these women are un uneducated, subject to all sorts of coercion, including mm -hmm. sexual coercion. Um, the stories, however, do suggest to me, uh, Sharon, that, well, first of all, they're evocative as to how important the family is, how mm -hmm. important some sense of community is. Do you get that impression? Very much so, and I think uh, what they address is a number of stereotypes about welfare recipients. We just have just growth and unfair uh generalizations about welfare recipients. So she does a series of interviews and oral histories and case studies looking at welfare recipients in, in the rural community because mm -hmm. we often think about welfare recipients as being urban-based. But she looks at them in rural Mississippi and looks at the ways in which, like the other women we have uh, examined in the book, how they employ various strategies to overcome their struggle and how it's not a question of welfare versus wage work. Often they have jobs, but they're low-income right. jobs, they're seasonal jobs, and they use welfare 
as a supplement. This was a very timely essay because as she was writing it, it was in the midst of uh, various pieces of legislation about welfare and, and mm-hmm. uh, from welfare to work, which yeah. needs a whole other <laughs> series of, of essays. Yeah. Let me take a moment from our conversation just to say that this is Dialogue, a presentation of the Woodrow Wilson Center. I'm George Liston, CA, and my guest is Sharon Harley, editor of Sister Circle, Black Women and Work. Let's talk about your own essay. Um, this is really, it's, well, it's not just because you're present company, but it's one of my favorites. It's, uh, the Other Path is a woman who worked in the underground economy of the early 20th century, the underground economy, to be uh, candid here, in, as bootleggers, numbers backers, and, and uh, the institution of, of uh, the uh, business of prostitution. And the subject is the very colorful, very successful Odessa Marie Madre. Tell people what she did. Well, she uh, was a very successful numbers backer. That's sort of the legal uh, betting on numbers uh, pre-legal lotteries. And she ran uh, various uh, gambling dens. She sold bootleg liquor. And she also had a house of ill repute, which, you know, was involving prostitution. But she was so successful at it that she was known often as the Al Capone of Washington, D.C. And this was a a kind of a a job or a work area in which males had dominated. So Mm -hmm. she was very unique, not only in that she was a successful businesswoman in these enterprises, but that she was sort of at the top of the game, as it were. Right. And... uh, She's a very, very fascinating woman. Here, I want somebody to do a screenplay, right? Because she's a fascinating woman. I mean, you would think uh, a woman who was smart, who had gone Mm -hmm. to the very prestigious Dunbar High School, came from a family with with, uh, property and some business background and professional family members, that she would have gone on, like many Dunbar graduates, to to teach. And that was the, uh, the occupation that mainly available and only available, well, main, the only occupation that black women um, could could have a professional position was as teachers. But she didn't want to be a teacher. And through a whole series of fascinations with the uh, life of the kind of the fast life that, uh, that she was around her in the neighborhood where she grew up, she became interested in having a kind of her own uh, mm-hmm. business, gambling, and the like. Yeah. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, she remembered her days at Dunbar as being particularly painful. She was a darker-skinned African-American woman, and uh, she remembered being teased, not only because of her skin color, but also because she herself says I wasn't particularly attractive. And so she used uh, the money she probably got from her parents. She used her own bravado and sense Mm -hmm. of herself and and courageously went into a field that she found both success, exciting and uh, lucrative. Yeah, and she had to, in doing that and being successful at it, and she had counterparts in other mm-hmm. cities. Sure. And, um, one thinks, well, New Orleans and, mm-hmm. and right. even the North, uh, Detroit and so forth. Uh, but you had to be tough mm-hmm. and you had to be a first-rate executive. Right. Uh, there's no question about it. What is also interesting about her, and this is, I don't know the answer to this question, of course, but I think this might be very, very uh, intriguing. What was her relation, Sharon, with the larger community? Because now here you have a successful woman doing 
um, the demi monde, you know, the other the tenderloin, the other side of the, of the street, um, but doing it very, very successfully. What's the effect of that on the larger community? Well, that's a good question. I think if we put it in the context of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. I would think that she she had a relationship with the business community because like many other people in this line of work, she had a legitimate business, right. which was a nightclub called Club Madre, where um, Count Basie and uh, uh, Joe Lewis and other moms, maybe, uh, frequent her her, um, her nightclub. And so she obviously had some relationship with that element of the black community. She had contact with poor working class black families in her neighborhood because she often gave them money. I think her relationship with the probably the black professional elite was m- maybe probably the more strained of those relationships mm-hmm. because um, while people understood that in many cases this was the only way black people could make money and, and poor ethnic communities could make money, um, I think that people probably of the the religious, the kind of the most religiously conservative African Americans and the black professional elite, she may not have been looked at in the right. most positive light. Yeah, those uh, well, men and women alike in this sense. I'm thinking back to my own time in Buffalo, New York, uh, and the numbers runners who were often the, the richest people around uh, and the toughest, and uh, ten- ended up being in a kind of behind the scenes way. Uh, the go-to guys for a lot of things that were done, but not brought up front. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I um, I was re- I wasn't reluctant to write this essay mm-hmm. because I wanted to write about all aspects of African American women's work, mm-hmm. but there was some concern expressed when the seminar met and I presented my my essay mm-hmm. because people were concerned about what were the implications of writing about a woman like this would people see african-american people in a negative light you know make gross generalizations and i uh certainly couldn't i didn't feel the same concern that other people had because i knew there were people like adessa madri in many communities and they they weren't all african-american people but oftentimes these were the people who behind the scenes supported civil rights struggles, political struggles. They were the ones who would put money in in the church basket. Mm -hmm. They were the ones who often would send people off to college. And when I have presented my essay in the book to a public audience and I talk about the reluctance and the concern I have about writing about a person like this, several people, including people in the seminar, came up to me afterwards and said, Oh, I went to Harvard, and my grandmother ran a numbers yeah. game, and I bought my books at Harvard from the money my grandmother sent to me. The next um, uh, essay I want to cite is my is a personal heartbreaker. Um, and I think you pointed out quite mm-hmm. rightly at the beginning, these are stories of, of triumph on many levels, and yet there is a great sadness that people even had to contend against these things. Francil Roussan, is it? Wilson? Roussan. Roussan Wilson's uh, poignant essay on Sadie Moselle Alexander. Sadie Moselle Alexander is the first black woman to achieve a doctorate in economics in 1921. I think it was from University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, but in any event, and here's what's important, racism and sexism combine to keep her from using it. I think she ends up working for, gets a law degree after mm-hmm. that, I think, and works for her husband. Yeah. Um, that This has to be a devastating comment on racism, because I mean, here you have someone who's done... At all, mm-hmm. and yet can't do any of it, mm-hmm. not allowed to do any right. of it. 
Yeah, she uh, received her Ph.D. from the Wharton School in economics and can't find a job mm-hmm. in her field. In fact, her one of her professors at the Wharton School was so upset about this mm-hmm. that he refused to recommend any of his students to the firms that, re- that, that refused to hire her. And she ended up working as an actuary at the, North, the black-owned North Carolina Mutual Insurance Association. And then she comes back and gets a law degree, and mm-hmm. no law firm would, would pick mm-hmm. up this very, pre- this very smart person with this very prestigious degree. So she ends up working with, with, in a husband's law firm, but not in the big lucrative uh, cases. She ends up, not surprisingly, working in the domestic arena, family, divorce cases, and the mm-hmm. like. But, George, you'll be happy to know that in, a, in this essay and in the larger uh, essay for a new book we're working on, uh, Professor Wilson talks about how Sadie reconstructed herself as the woman of the year and would promote herself, probably because people never fully recognized her uh, for her professional attributes. And so she would position herself in photographs and at forums as the first of everything. And uh, you'd also, I think, be happy to know that there's a large picture of her at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So she is finally getting her due, but she uh, was not uh, overwrought by her failure to uh, get her rightful professional place. She promoted herself Mm -hmm. and uh, considered herself on par with the the giants wherever. And uh, Professor Wilson has a a photographic uh, talk that she does of images of... uh, uh, Sadie Alexander, where Sadie positions herself always in the center and the front, even dresses in a way that would draw attention to her. And uh, she had a certain picture that she would use um, to promote the youthful Sadie mm-hmm. Alexander. So I think this essay underscores what we're trying to say throughout the book, is mm-hmm. that these women had uh, various challenges, mm-hmm. but they develop strategies to try yeah. to address them. Well, she mm-hmm. might be the most colorful example of all, but it, but the, the qualities you've suggested uh, that you've outlined for her uh, must have been to some degree part of all of them. I mean, it, 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 these are strong people. Right. Don't quit. Right. Deborah Willis acquaints us with the difficulties faced by uh, black women artists. And I, um, this is a vast topic, but given the constraints of time, let me see if I can target a question that will get at least one aspect of it out. Um, when I think of black artists in general and black women artists in particular, whatever the field may be, it occurs to me that um, one, of the, one of the pillars of, uh, of segregation, of, certainly of slavery, of segregation, bigotry, has been to deny intellectual activity. Uh, and of which artistic expression is, you know, the, uh, one of the most uh, exquisite uh, aspects. Which seems to me that the, the the path of the black woman artist has to be must have been an especially hard one. To, to yeah, I, yeah, I I think that is true. I think um, what Debbie Willison and she's just a very distinguished um, scholar of black photography and a MacArthur Award recipient. Mm-hmm. Um, she does several things for this book. She not only brings her own experience as an artist, as a noted photographer, but as a scholar of the field. And and it has been particularly difficult, and it has been difficult by what we described earlier, the issue of racism and, and, and sexism and the like. And it's also been difficult not only 
because there's often not been an avenue for black women artists to have their work presented to museums and the like. But also they, what Debbie does is look at the images of mm-hmm. black women, often negative, stereotypical, and she offers a kind of critical analysis of what those images represent right. and, and the like. So it's a multifaceted aspect of looking at visual representation. And, and when you put it that way, it reminds us on how many fronts the battles are waged. Right. I mean, it's not just to get the jobs, it's you, what you're thought of, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, uh, what you have to fight to be allowed to do. Um, if the artistic realm faced its special constraints, Sharon, I'm wondering, at some risk at asking this because I don't know, but uh, I'm wondering if the religious arena is a freer form. Mm-hmm. And um, I moved to say that because Judy Moore Latta, and a, a colorfully titled When the Spirits Take Takes Hold, What the Work Becomes, introduces Sister Leona Davis and Donna Sam's heart to us, women who are gospel singers, evangelists, and educators. And uh, I've just always had a perception of the church. Um, I guess this is, it was the church a place where you could you could express yourself, move ahead, and, and realize yourself in ways uh, that might have been easier than elsewhere. Well, you could realize yourself, but you couldn't try to be the minister. Well, that's right, too. <laughs> you could realize yourself, but you probably couldn't be on the uh, policy-making mm-hmm. trustee board mm-hmm. until very, very recently. Uh, this is a wonderful uh piece because uh, it underscores several things about the book, that work isn't just about wage work. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the ways in which black women have engaged in work uh, for for many centuries is in their community work, particularly in the church. So this essay suggests that we clearly see work in a uh, non-wage-earning capacity and these women were spiritual workers. Mm-hmm. They worked not only to uh, finance the church, but also do this very important spiritual work of the community. I think uh, it's particularly salient for African-American communities to look at church women in their work lives. And I think you're right. It has, even though the women don't often occupy the leadership positions, but it does empower them to mm-hmm. get out and be in the public arena. Mm-hmm. Well, Sharon, it's a remarkable book, and as we conclude this conversation, the obvious question is where do we go from here? What is uh, ahead of us? Uh, you mentioned earlier you are uh, at now currently at work on the very next uh, book. You know, I move to reflect that this, these are extraordinary times we're in. We have, I think, more than one um, black woman who's the CEO of a Fortune 500 com- company these days, which is extraordinary in itself. But at the same time, of course, we have... Depri- um, situations in our inner cities that are keeping young African-American women from even uh, dreaming of that. Um, This is the age of globalization uh, relating to the world at large. And I'm just wondering, what's your sense of, uh, has the the challenge to black women changed because of all these factors? Or does what has been true remain true? I I think it's just shifted. I don't, you know, I think, um, well, several things. One is, um, yes, where do we go from here? Mm I actually am now hitting a seminar like this one on work. Welcome back. And uh, that is going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to uh, a interview on uh, the development of African women and the labor force in the United States during the 19th and uh, 20th centuries. And, uh, 
We're going to close out our program. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, March 13th, an early morning hour of Monday, March 14th. And uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, but let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We're going to close out uh, with the music of Shirley Scott and the album entitled Now is the Time. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.